0: Now, here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio.
1: Welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Now, let me introduce Katie Mann for you. He became a miracle expert the hard way you're going to hear this story. But at 19, she walked away from serial killer Ted Bundy with the help of a stranger who just appeared seemingly out of nowhere. She has a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology from Santa Clara University, spent nearly 20 years in banking. Katie, welcome to the program. Looking forward to this.
0: Thank you, George. Thank you for having me.
1: So for some people who may not know the name Ted Bundy, let me tragically uh, mention who he is, and I hope I don't bring back horrid memories for you. But uh, back in the 70s, Ted Bundy was a serial killer who admitted to killing 30 women and possibly many, many more that he didn't admit to that uh, he may have killed. Tell me about this story with you. Where were you when this happened?
0: Well, I was 19. It was the summer of 1975, so anybody that wants to do the math, that makes me old.
1: <laughs> um,
0: so, And I had a summer job. I worked from uh, 7 a.m. till 3 p.m., and I caught a ferry at 4 o'clock home, and so I always had an hour to kill you know, before before my ride home. And I was window shopping in front of um, an old, iconic San Francisco store called I'm Eggman. When a stranger walked up to me, he was maybe, you know, 30 years old, very clean cut, you know, the kind of guy you'd mm-hmm. introduce to your parents and bring home for dinner. And he said um, that he was new in town, that he'd had eye surgery, and he was trying to look up his best friend's parents. He wanted to get in touch with them. You know, could I help him? And so I sort of thought, you know, don't take candy from a stranger, and I said, no, I'm sorry, I can't help you, and I walked to the crosswalk and was waiting for the light to change, and he followed me, and he repeated his story, and he was just really persistent, and Finally, he said, "Hey, you know, I'm staying um, right up the block there at the Hyatt. You know, there's a phone book in the lobby. Won't you please just help me out?" So then, of course, I'm thinking, "Okay, be a good Samaritan." And you know, there's going to be plenty of people in the lobby, so of course I could help him out. Well, we walked into the hotel. As I recall, it was it was um, it's built on a hill, and it was the floor below the lobby. And we got into an elevator, and sure enough, there's lots of people, lots of people in the elevator. And when it stops on the lobby, everybody in the elevator exits, and he and I were sort of in the back of the elevator, and by the time I sort of realized what was happening, the elevator doors shut, and I realized that he would pressed the mezzanine. And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, the mezzanine, I'm sure that's gonna have plenty of people. But we get off on the mezzanine, and it's completely deserted. Oh, boy. And we walk down this deserted hallway, we walk into a conference room, very long, rectangular room, and in the back of this room is a payphone that's on the wall. And this is how it was done in the olden days. And uh, there's a phone book on the metal shelf below it. So I'm facing the wall looking for a Brown family that lives on Marina Boulevard. And I'm, I'm going down these columns and columns of Brown. He's standing behind me. And all of a sudden, maybe, maybe a minute goes by, and this feeling of terror, absolute terror, comes over me. Because it wasn't like there was a checklist. It was just this instantaneous realization. There's no patch on his eye. Why wouldn't he know the first names of his best friend's parents?
1: Mm -hmm. And why
0: would he have asked me? And here I am in a deserted room with a stranger, just what I've been taught my entire life not to do. And I turn around. His entire demeanor had changed.
1: You could see it on his face, couldn't you? What's that? You saw it on his face, didn't you? He changed.
0: His, his face changed, and his eyes got dark. I mean, that's the only way that I can describe it. And he looked at me, and he knew that I knew, and that was what he was waiting for. And right then, a bellman walks into the room. I have no idea where he came from. He looks right at me, and he says, don't you think you should be going now? Oh, my God. And I walk out of the room. We walk down the hallway, the elevator was open. I get in the elevator with the bellman. The man doesn't follow us. We get off on the lobby. I'm absolutely shell-shocked. I, you know, it took me a few seconds to get my wits about me, and when I did, I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to thank this guy. And, you know, I look to the right and the left and straight ahead, and he is nowhere to be found. Oh. So, this happened, and I was, I didn't tell anyone about this story. I mean, I told my mother, you know, like that day, and over the years I told a few people. I certainly told my husband once mm-hmm. I got married. And 15 years went by, and I could never make sense of this story. It, it just didn't add up. I wasn't looking for a spiritual explanation, but it just didn't add up to me. and you know, over the years, at least a few times a year, I would wake up from a nightmare and this man's face was literally emblazoned in my head, Absolutely. and my heart would be pounding, and, you know, it was just a, a, not a good experience. And so anyway, one night, um, we're in bed reading the morning paper, the San Francisco Chronicle, and my husband hands me the newspaper and says, oh my God, Katie, I think this is your guy. And there on the front page is a photograph of Ted Bundy and the article talked about um, how you know he feigned injury well, first
1: of all, mm-hmm. he used to his, put his, casts on his arm and just what everything right. to get, get, to get women
0: vic- Yeah, to lure his victims and at least at the time his profile was exactly like me five six or five seven you know thin long blonde or brown hair parted in the middle um, and It said that he was a frequent visitor to San Francisco in the mid-1970s when he was at at the height of his murder spree, that he was a suspect in murders um, uh, in the Bay Area. And I knew in my gut that that's who I saw that day.
1: When you saw the picture in the paper, what kind of feeling did you have come over you?
0: I just got this, this terrified pit in my stomach all over again. You know, and people have asked me over the years, like he, because it was, I think, the 30th anniversary of his execution in, in 2019, because this, this was in January of 89 that I read the newspaper articles. Um, and, you know, they've asked me, um, you know, did I watch the, there was a documentary um, a year or two ago. And, and the answer is absolutely not.
1: <laughs> you you, you, I mean, really, you just, really weren't interested in seeing anything about him, were you?
0: I wasn't, although I did watch the trailer for that documentary. And the thing that was fascinating about it is there was another survivor, I think, that they interviewed. And she said the same thing I did, which is that his eyes had gotten dark. And I thought that was just so bizarre that that was the one thing that we both keyed on because it was, it was visceral and it was real.
1: Did he have anything in his hands, Katie? Sometimes he would hit people over the head with, uh, you know, tire irons and things like that.
0: No. No, he... I, I certainly wouldn't have gone up to the hotel with him if he'd had anything in his hand. Right,
1: and, right. And he
0: didn't. Um, one thing I neglected to mention, when I did turn around and he did realize that I knew, he started to come toward me.
1: Oh, he, he, he was, was, he was going to suffocate you or strangle you?
0: Yes, no question.
1: And you would have been up there on the mezzanine level all by yourself. Now, this this bell captain, in your opinion, as you've had all these years to think about it, who do you think that was? What do you think that was?
0: You know, I've had so many people that have said to me, and in fact, when I really sort of started to go through a spiritual metamorphosis, it was my niece that just looked at me very, you know, she was in her maybe 20 at the time, but she... Looked at me and just said, "Katie, he was an angel." And so I, I've certainly had um, people suggest that he was an angel. Whether he was a human angel or um, ethereal, I don't know. Um, but I certainly think "angel" is is a good a good label for him.
1: And how did you team up with uh, Joan to write this book, The Miracle Collectors?
0: I think like like most um, moms. Uh, get together and become friends. She has a daughter who became very close friends with my daughter, and so when they were in uh, Brownies, the, the precursor to Girl Scouts,
1: yep, we got to know that.
0: each other. So, so we've known each other for well over 20 years.
1: And do you continue thinking about this case, this episode, with Bundy?
0: All the time. And the reason I think about it all the time, besides having now written two books that this was the catalyst story for, it's, you know, there's various elements that you can peel back about this story that I I really didn't understand. Even after I read the newspaper article and started to think about sort of the story superficially and, and sort of the visceral reaction I had to the recognition that it was Ted Bundy, but you start, you know, as a mom of two daughters um, and as a woman myself, I look back to who I was when I was 19, how naive I was. And, and frankly, um, at the time, I was pretty embarrassed by my stupidity. So, you know, um, that's one reason I think I didn't tell a lot of people about the story. But since then, I've thought about the power that a sociopath has over someone who instantly trusts him yes. for whatever reason. And that aspect of it kind of fascinates me. And I, so I've, I've, I've had to sort of forgive myself and let myself off the hook and recognize that he really did hold all the power because he knew from the beginning exactly what he was doing.
1: And he was and very was, good at what he did.
0: He was a master manipulator and um, a sociopath.
1: And... Uh... Thank God you got out of that situation. Because had yes. had that whoever it might have been or whatever it might have been not shown up, God knows what would have happened to you.
0: Yeah, I don't think I'd be here talking to you if the no, Bellman hadn't shown up.
1: I don't think you would be either.
0: Yeah, and the thing is, if the Bellman had casually walked into the room and said, Oh, excuse me, I didn't know anybody was here or, you know, was clearly up there for reasons that had to do with the hotel, but what has always haunted me is that that man walked into the room, the bellman, and looked right at me and said those words, don't you think you should be going now? I mean, it's just bizarre.
1: And Katie, you know, without being too gory about this, Bundy would decapitate a lot of his victims, keep their heads in his apartment, I mean, this 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 guy was whacked out. I mean, whacked out. He would, in some cases, take the bodies into the woods and go back and visit them for sexual gratification long after their bodies were decomposing. I mean, he was one whacked out person. And uh, the, the, uh, the planet's yeah, I, better without him, let me tell you.
0: I agree completely. Um, the only murders that I read about, um, maybe because they happened in real time and I hadn't connected um, my story to these stories, was the Florida co-eds. I think it was Florida State where he murdered several um, women in one particular night. And it was Florida where he was put to death.
1: That's where they eventually Um, got him. That's right.
0: Right. And I think it wasn't for the Florida State murder spree. I think it was a 12-year-old girl that went missing, and that was later attributed. Yeah. to him.
1: And then he admitted to 30 murders, and there could have been way more that uh, he j- j- just didn't admit to. You know who knows. Yeah. And
0: and kind of an interesting aside. Um, when I first, when we were first going to write the first book, I thought, you know what? Before I research, and,
1: and that's the my- the miracle chase, right?
0: Yes, the first book was the Miracle Chase, and the second, the book that just launched today, is the Miracle Collectors. Right. Um, but before I, you know, we wrote that book, that first book. I thought, you know, I'm going to write down my story exactly as I've always told it, and so that's what I did. So what you see in both books is, and what I just told you on the show is exactly how I wrote it down. You know, 20 years ago. But then after I wrote it down, I thought, okay, now I can Google Ted Bundy and see, you know, sort of what's out there. And I could not find any connection to Ted Bundy and California. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's really weird. Anyway, to make a long story short, I went and looked up the microfiche article that I'd read in the San Francisco Chronicle. And what it said was there was an article entitled California was on the list. And while Ted Bundy, the last week before he was executed, he was... Trying to, you know, get a stay of execution, and I think, and he had told whoever, if you bring, you know, officials from the following states, I will tell them basically how many and where the bodies are buried. And so California was on the list. He had asked for somebody from California to come. Um, California never sent anyone.
1: Why not?
0: I because they didn't have
1: the budget. Jeez, yeah, he was involved in California, Colorado, Florida, Idaho, Oregon, Utah, and the state yep. of Washington.
0: Yep, yep.
1: Unbelievable. I mean, uh, I followed his uh, history, and uh, because I was in the news business while this was going on, and yeah. uh, he was born in Vermont and uh, started his spree. He was one whacked-out person, uh, horrible childhood, horrible childhood, which probably contributed to what happened. Now, but in your opinion, Katie, what is a miracle?
0: You know, you'd think after 20 years of researching it that I'd have, you know, an instant answer, but I'll, (laughs) I'll say this. When we started out, you know, I thought about miracles in a very biblical sense, you know, the parting of the Red Seas or the turning of water into wine, but... As I've evolved, as we've evolved, um, I've kind of gone almost completely to a very broad definition of what miracles are. And Einstein said, there's only two ways to live your life. One is as if nothing is a miracle, and the other is is as if everything is a miracle. So I subscribe to the everything is a miracle. Um, And by that I mean it, 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 it doesn't brush aside the fact that we live in a world that is full of calamity and tragedy. Um, What it does do is it says there are these nuggets, these gifts of grace that are really available to all of us. And that was part of my own journey, was going from understanding how can you believe in, in, you know, sort of a thunderbolt definition of miracle that only happens to some people. I mean, what about all the other women that Ted Bundy murdered? Yeah. You know, where was the miracle for them? And so this process for me evolved into um, understanding, really, that miracles are available to all of us. And so my definition of miracles would be closer to what Einstein um, thought, what he visualized.
1: You know, somebody married him while he was uh, incarcerated,
0: I did not know that. I did, I did know that he had a girlfriend in the Bay Area um, in, in, the seven, in the mid-70s, Yeah, he got, that's why he was a frequent visitor there.
1: He got married in the 1980, divorced in 1986. Who in God's right mind would marry him? What kind of person would marry him?
0: I, I think somebody who was duped by his charm and his manipulation and who didn't believe he was guilty. Yeah. I mean, that's the only explanation, right?
1: She's probably still alive. I wonder how she feels now that he confessed to 30 murders.
0: She, um, maybe I'm not thinking of his wife, but I know his girlfriend, you know, was the, um, uh, that she wrote a book. Again, I have not read it. Um, And it might have been his wife, but I think it was his girlfriend that wrote a book.
1: Crazy times. Crazy times.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Do you think miracles happen? Why do they happen, in your opinion?
0: I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, there's sort of a divine hand, God's hand, imprinted around the world all the time. You know, I think we just have to find it. We have to look for it. Um, so I think that, you know, creation unfolds. I think that there's beauty to be had in nature, and I think that's been a gift to humanity. Um, so that's, that's part of the answer. I mean, I think that miracles are here because, God, do we need them.
1: Oh, my God, you know? M- maybe more Except now than now. ever. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I
0: think, I think that our book is hopeful and uplifting at a time when people need to be reminded that um, these things happen, And we aren't, I don't think that that God is necessarily understandable by us, but um, I think that these are gifts and clues, and um, like I've said, available to to all of us to to seek out. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.